You're listening to Station F, the podcast. From the world's largest startup campus in Paris. This is Station F, the podcast, and I'm your host, Roxanne Varza. This week, we have a very special guest, an expert in community building, Bailey Richardson. She has an incredible experience. She started as one of the first employees at Instagram and is now co-founder of People & Company, an organization that works with numerous businesses to help them build communities. On a personal note, I'm a huge fan of her work. I've read her book, Get Together, which features a lot of different communities, and she's inspired us quite a bit at Station F. Hi, Bailey. It's great to have you with us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Likewise, after all of the following I have been doing of uh, everything you've been doing, really excited to have you here. Um, I wanted to start with, first of all, kind of, it might seem like a very basic question, but I want to really understand what is your definition of a community? Because there are so many communities out there, and I think a lot of our listeners might just kind of reduce it to Facebook or social network. So is it essentially any group where everybody in the group has a common interest? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, One thing I've realized in doing research the last four or five years, I've been asking a lot of people about community, um, doing research with people who lead them, and also just because it's my work, having a lot of side conversations with people about this. And one thing that I realized is that for anyone who's over maybe the age of 60 or 65, the word community definitely means their town or maybe their church in the United States or uh, somewhere where they play a sport. It's just, it's really physically associated. And I think one of the reasons why the word community is so ambiguous right now is because the internet has really completely changed what community means for us. Like as human beings, we, we can access other people and feel connected to them that we may never meet or that we're not sharing the same, you know, piece of land or area of, of physical space with. And so I think we're trying to figure out what is community going to mean to us now that we have these ways of connecting. So I always appreciate, you know, really attempting to clarify that word for exactly the reason you said, I think we're in this moment of shift. Um, but, but we have a definition that we use that is not groundbreaking in in the actual words themselves. You know, I think there are probably some more artful definitions out there. Um, but but I like to describe a community as a group of people who keep coming together over something that they care about. And that there are sort of three elements to that definition. Number one is is it's a group of people, um, and for us we really try to push people to specificity with who is in that group of people. Uh, So I think you made this point that people use this word community for maybe their social media audience, or I think Mark Zuckerberg uses it for every user on Facebook. And that is not sufficiently specific for us. These should be the really passionate people. They should be the people who are sort of active, participatory really key partners in whatever you're trying to do. And, and the more specific you can be about who they are, the more you can serve them. So 
It's a group of people um, who keep coming together in tech language. That means they're retained, but uh, showing up once is not enough. Um, it doesn't make a community. And we see a lot of people out in the world hosting sort of community events or like conferences and and using the word community to describe those. And I would really push people to say that, you know, communities, it takes it takes multiple times for someone to spend time with another person or a group of people and to build the kind of meaningful relationships that allow them to understand each other's lives, understand each other's works and exchange information. Um, so it, it, we really push people to think about community building as an act that needs to be repeated. And um, if people just get together once, that doesn't make them a community. So a group of people who keep coming together over something they care about, that final piece, that third element, um, it, it is crucial. And it's sort of the magic, the, the thing that people are brought together by. We like to describe it as maybe the connective tissue, the passion point. It, it can be different for any community. You know, we've interviewed uh, a cloud appreciation society where people who love clouds come together to share their photos of them and talk about them. Uh, we've interviewed uh, a men's a men's group who comes together to support African men who have experienced sexual abuse. Um, we've interviewed the Star Wars fan club. Like these 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 things that bring people together can vary so widely, <laughs> as widely as human passions and, and experiences can vary, and and that really changes what the community might look like and what they might do together. But those are the three elements. So a group of people, specific group who keeps coming together over something they care about. And, you know, the final thing I'll add in this lengthy answer, thank you for indulging me, is um, that we really underscore more than anything else the how of how to build a community, which is for us, you need to build a community with people, not for them. And that that really means that building a community is about progressive acts of partnership so doing more with other people, giving other people roles and responsibility at every stage. And that's what makes communities really mighty. They might start with a small group of people, but if you effectively collaborate and bring on more partners, you'll have more and more people contributing and doing little actions that add up to a lot more. So the power of community building is, is I think, a little bit less in maybe the, the definition of the body of people, but in the fact that if you collaborate and you get people together over and over again, that can groundswell into something very powerful. Wow. And I think it's it's great that we took the time to actually really dive into your definition, because I do think a lot of people, as you mentioned, use the term very loosely, maybe don't refer to a group that keeps coming together. Um, I love the examples that you give, especially because I think the Cloud Appreciation Society, when I was reading your book, was like one of my favorite um, examples of a community. <laughs> the photo so of him I'm... is just the winner of the sure. <laughs> love <laughs> that aside, one. That's a total aside, but it's worth Googling, the Cloud Appreciation Society. I love it. Um, <laughs> but I think we'll get a chance to dive a little bit more into this in just a second. First, I wanted to understand, how did you kind of find yourself doing this? Because you've really kind of become the community expert. Um, but tell us a little bit about how you got here. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for saying that. There, there. I'll, I would like happily gush over, over a couple of other people who are also just total masters at this, um, including my first boss. Well, not my first boss, but um, when I, I think my first experience with community and my job title was I was one of the first employees at Instagram. Um, 
I think I was like number eight or nine or something. We didn't keep count. And when I joined the team, my team was called community. Like we weren't even called the community team. I didn't have a specific role. It was just community at Instagram. And, and basically our team was composed of people building the product. So designer and people writing code. Um, and then our team, which I described as the conduit between uh, the users using Instagram and the people who were building it. And we would go kind of both directions. So we did all the communication from Instagram to the world, all the storytelling from Instagram to the world, all the writing of policies and supporting people. Um, and then also the absorbing of information from users. So maybe there was spam on Instagram or uh, Android device in Brazil wasn't working. We were in charge of kind of hearing those things from the community and bringing them back to our product team. And frankly, I did did that work and Instagram obviously was such a phenomenon and continues to be. And people who were on it in the very beginning kind of as a glimmer in their eye now because it's been so long, but the folks who had Instagram and in sort of this magical period of the first maybe two years, it, it really was a, a very special place to connect with other people. People built relationships with strangers who were also into fashion or into their pet, specific pet dog, the shih tzus or surfing or whatever. Uh, and it sounds almost naive um, now, and I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't lived through it. But I saw people connecting through their passions and actually forming real relationships, enough that people would fly across the world if they could to meet people. Um, and that would totally transcend sort of like traditional class boundaries. You know, I, I remember a young fashion blogger, a young Korean American girl who lived in LA, came to one of our Instagram events during fashion week. She like wanted to come up and talk to us, the community team, and told us that she had been at a fashion week event and took, an, took a photo of um, some clothes that she thought were interesting and this was like 2014, 2013, a long time ago. And and Rihanna commented on her photo and said she was so glad that she was at that show. Wow. And, and it, it just was like clear to me that Rihanna actually is passionate about fashion and appreciated this young immigrant girl's taste and that they were connecting on that level. Um, so there was something that people described as kind of like the, the I don't know, the, the 70s or 80s in New York kind of energy about Instagram. And so all that's to say is that I left Instagram and I think a lot of people wanted to ask, what did you guys do? You know, like so many people wanted to ask that question to kind of understand why it was successful. And for me, that meant the lane of building a community online that actually felt human, um, you know, and, and felt sincere and felt creative and connected. And I believed that I really I had answers that I could give them that was just from my experience at Instagram. And I, I wasn't sure where I, what I had done applied to other people and where it didn't. And from sort of that experience of wanting to be more accurate and more valuable in my answers to other people, I, I just began learning as much as I could about the space and trying to write down what I was sure of. In the process, I, I met two other people that have really become my 
my intellectual and practical partners in this journey. And, and we run a little company where we uh, advise and coach both individuals and organizations and companies who are trying to get clearer on this work and maybe establish a competitive advantage and, and a clear strategy. Um, but but I've just basically tried to drink from the fire hose of as many different types of communities as I can in order to see the patterns of what do great community leaders, people organizing communities, what do they do across the board, especially in a digital world where communication and organizing has has completely changed. And so that's uh, that's quite a journey. And I'm just wondering, these companies that you guys are working with today, there is such a huge emphasis being put on community building, um, but why is it good for business? Yeah, I think I wish there was a really simple answer to that question, um, it, but the the specifics do kind of matter uh, here. In the case of you know, it depends on what business you're running and what value you're creating, um, how a community might impact that work, but. When I, I talked about how you build a community, you know, I, I described it as collective acts of partnership. And the more I do this work, the more I think about community building as really a, an act of partnership. So thinking about as a company, where might we not have the talent, the capacity, or maybe just the number of bodies to realize a, a key initiative uh, for our company internally? Uh, and are there people out in the world who we might be able to make into sort of small partners, lots of small partners who could help us with that? So, you know, for instance, we've been helping out the team at Substack. Um, and if you don't know Substack, they're, they're really becoming quite, quite p- powerful here in the United States as, uh, in particular, the journalism industry is beginning to to just kind of fade, with, especially with the pandemic, at an accelerated rate. And essentially, Substack is um, an email newsletter tool. Uh, you could think about it kind of like MailChimp or Tiny Letter. But instead of just delivering email, they allow writers to become independent and to have their readers pay the writers. So you can say some of your some of your writing. You can charge a dollar or five dollars a month or ten dollars a month, and when you start to get you know a thousand people, a few thousand people, some people have hundreds of thousands of people paying for their writing on Substack. It allows writers to have a, a significant income, um, and they have all these amazing tools that allow the writers to connect to their readers. Um, but to to zoom in on the on the strategy for them, the community strategy for them, they're a small team. And their platform is growing really quickly. New writers are coming on so fast. And to be successful as an independent writer, Substack makes it easier with their tools, but it's still complex. It's a challenge to transition from having a paycheck, working for you know a paper like the New York Times or whatever, to being completely independent, not having coworkers, you know, uh, deciding on your own editorial rhythm, on your own topics, trying to grow this this newsletter. And Substack has tried to replicate their employees as much as they possibly can to be able to support these writers that are coming on that are new to be successful on Substack. And what they need to do in order to scale is to find a way to connect their writers to each other. 
and to share ideas and information and maybe also just some emotional support with one another. So sort of writers teaching other writers how to be successful on Substack. And if they have a few hundred writers doing that or a few thousand writers doing that really, really well, you see how instead of them building out, you know, as a small team, this huge investment in hundreds of employees or thousands of employees trying to support writers, they're able to solve this problem um, much faster and probably much more authentically than they could if they just hired company representatives. Um, so so that that sort of sense of if you're thinking about maybe there's something that we can't do as a team or we won't be able to do quite quickly enough as a team um, than if we opened this up and, and sought out key partners, gave them really clear structure to how they can contribute um, and, and, and then let them, let them lead this, this sort of effort out in the world will be able to affect so many more people than we ever could. Um, so, and, and that really mirrors my experience at Instagram. Um, you know, we were a team of, of like four people at first and eventually, you know, maybe 10 or 13 community team members, but we had empowered, you know, thousands of people to tell Instagram story by making them suggested users or writing about them on our blog. And thousands of people, when you look at the overall user numbers of something like Instagram, didn't feel very significant. And I remember talking to the VP of marketing at Facebook who came to lead Instagram. And he said to me, that's an amazing number. As someone who is thinking about headcount and building a company to have thousands of people out there hosting events for Instagram and speaking in the press and you know um, driving little nodes of energy on the platform, we could never fund that even at a su- successful company like Instagram internally. So that that's how I think about it is, is who do you need? What do you need key partners for? Is it for enthusiasm? Is it for user education? Is it for spreading access? to a service, um, you know, something like Creative Mornings, a chapter-based TEDx, bringing it to a local area. Uh, is it for feedback and, and QA? That's a really powerful reason to have a community. There's, there's a lot of different reasons depending on exactly what your business does, but I boil it down to, you know, who do you need key partners? What kind of key partners do you need and, and how do you create those? Yeah, and I think the Substack example is a really great example because it kind of allowed us to really see, you know, how how you would think about something like that and what it would be useful for. But I'm wondering, does community apply to all businesses or is it really for businesses that tend to have um, a B2C angle? I mean, like, would it apply to a B2B SaaS company? Yeah, you know, I think the one of the companies or one of the examples of this that's done an amazing job is AWS. Um, they really have invested a lot in their developer community and making sure that people who are maybe starting startups and figuring out their backend and how to build their servers, which is, you know, an art form, doing that really well. There's not like a simple way to just plug and play and figure out your data storage and all of these pieces. So honestly, in some ways, I think some of the people that have historically led and the professional space of community building have been um, number one, open source communities. And then number two, you know, some of these developer tools 
and, and the same at, you know, um, like Facebook's relationships with their developers, people that are making money off of the platform. Those are often pretty codified, structured practices of community building. So I think they do apply there. I think, though, to, to answer the question, there are companies where community sits really, really close to the core value of the business. And I think there are companies where you could argue that it sits a little further away. So for example, a very historical um, company that I like to bring up is Weight Watchers, who, who they're now called WW, but their story of their business is, is like absolutely mind-blowing. Um, it was started in the mid-60s in Queens by a housewife um, named Jean Nidich, who's just a remarkable person. She became like one of Maya Angelou's best friends, like just, just absolutely would stand in the middle of Madison Square Garden surrounded by thousands of people, like at the peak of her career, really interesting person. I went way too deep on Weight Watchers and like read her autobiography. Um, but, uh, you know, for Weight Watchers, um, for WW back in the sixties, there were a lot of women who were concerned about their their weight and their body, which, you know, I have a bone to pick with. Um, and and I'm going to set that aside. But uh, for, for people who are interested in trying to figure out how to be healthier um, or how to eat differently, there was no internet. And it was a really taboo to- topic. Women didn't speak to each other about that. And people were left without very much information. And what WW did was create, number one, a really clear strategy and kind of plan for how women could accro- approach changing their eating. But the other thing that they did is they put community at the very center of doing that. They knew that accountability and having a support system through that process was crucial to keep up people's commitment, which was essential, coming back every week, um, sticking to the plan, having someone to talk to. And so for WW, community has been key to actually the product offering they have. You're not going to be successful navigating this the service that they offer if you don't have a community as you go through it. But I also think that there are companies where it feels maybe a lot more tangential. Um, you know, for example, we've, we've worked with Nike on some community stuff, um, some investments that they have around different, different sports and different verticals. And Nike sees that if they don't increase the number of people year over year who are playing sports, who are participating in sports, then their business could decline. Nike is so big that if sports overall drops, Nike may drop. And and that's a reality that the athletic companies are looking at. Um, Right now, our, our young people are actually have lower at life expectancy than we do because they're just less active. They're they're staying at home. They're on their computers. They're not going out and playing the way kids did. And they're seeing a prediction that sport might drop. And so there's uh, an argument there that social interaction, having a social way to play sports is one of the ways that adults get back into athletics that had dropped it and also that people stick with it. And so you can see how, yes, there is a connection there, but it isn't necessarily at the center of the business of something like WW. Um, Having communities can help drive towards Nike's overall goal, but at the end of the day, they're also an apparel company and it doesn't sit in the center of what they do. It's, It's sort of additive and a way to maybe create a competitive advantage. 
So depending on the company um, and depending on how closely community sits to the core product or core service offering, um, I think you can you can prioritize how important the investment is to you, depending on the resources you have and depending on um, the the future that you're imagining for your business. Wow. So I think those are some incredible examples, Nike and Weight Watchers. And we've talked about Substack and we mentioned kind of briefly the Cloud Appreciation Society in the intro. Uh, but I'm just wondering, which have been some of your really favorite communities and why? It's a great question. You know, I guess I love being somehow, even though I've been doing this work now for four or five years, I continue to be delighted by the fact that people show up for things that they are passionate about without any expectation of monetary reward or fame, like these kind of conventional ways that people assume humans are incentivized. And over the last few years, We've done, you know, some some sprints, some deep engagements with with companies, and we always build with their community members. So we have moments in time where we bring in community members to actually help us check our ideas, develop our ideas, to listen to them, and it can be a really beautiful thing. Um, so there, there was one company that really stands out to me that was founded in the early 90s, I believe, or the mid-90s. And there was a, a man who was a Vietnamese uh, immigrant, moved to California and was going to college. And he was looking for deals on the internet. And back then, that was like the era where someone would input like a price on an online shop and maybe misinput it and you could get a camera for like a dollar 60 if you were paying close attention it was like this deal hunting um kind of wild wild west so any that way this man would um be looking for ways to buy things online that were really affordable that he was hoping to get and his blog started growing and other people would start submitting deals that they found, like they really respected his voice and they would start emailing and messaging him things they found. And this site became a repository of all of these people who were looking for some really like quality products at affordable prices. And if you ask a certain like profile of person in the United States about this website, um, which is called Slick Deals, they like if they were the right age at the right time, they, they totally know this website. And so we went in to help them think about how to proactively and positively invest in their community, even though they had the hundreds of people that were driving so much of the content on their site, the best deals on their site that brought all the traffic um, to slick deals, they were all hand curated. People were finding them and and posting them on the site. Um, and they're they're now like a top one hundred website. It's amazing. Um, they had never actually like met these people who had you know been on their site for fifteen to twenty years and posted thousands of deals and that they they knew like they knew their avatars, but they didn't know any texture behind them and. 
this 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 company now has you know like a some beautiful offices like in downtown Los Angeles on a high rise and all these young technologists working for them and we we brought in uh, you know seven to ten people who were longtime users and you know they they were from all over the United States like rural parts of Texas and they had all different backgrounds I mean some of them just it's just such an odd group. Um, and they, they took their time to like fly in to LA and spend like a day and a half with us. Um, and it, it just, every time I think that there aren't, there might not be people who really nerd out about blank or are really passionate about blank. I am completely delightfully surprised, uh, by my false assumption with that. Like these people were completely motivated, giving hours of their time to treasure hunt for deals and to be generous and give them to other people who are looking for a deal or to guide them in their purchasing decisions, which is totally not my jam. You know, I'm not, (laughs) that doesn't motivate me. I don't wake up in the morning to do that. But when you see the pure passion that these folks have for helping people save money and find good good products and how much it means to them and how much they believe in it. I like couldn't really help but be delighted. Um, so I think in terms of my like background and experience, continuing to see how if you just look for p- passionate people, if you actually become curious, instead of seeing your audience as a big mass of people that you're just like hitting with content and measuring their engagement, if you decide to listen and and look for other people who are curious and and sort of get to know them, um, it'll be really inspiring, number one, and I think you'll learn a lot and you can start to see the power that these people hold and and how they might be not just like an audience, like I said, that you can kind of push content at or ask for things from, but how they might be partners and and, and how you should treat them in that way. So I think I think that really stands out to me. I, I could I'm not sure if I answered the question that you wanted me to answer. Um, yeah, drive, no, diving I think- into my memory banks. But um, <laughs> yeah, that 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 was a really powerful experience. Yeah. And I can, I can see, I mean, like just by listening to you, these stories are so inspirational and you you use the word delight. And I think that you're absolutely right. Like that's the perfect word. Um, but I'm also wondering, cause you've kind of touched on this a little bit. What do people get wrong when they approach communities or think about community? Oh gosh. Well, first off, I mean, this is why I'm so glad you asked to define a community but I feel like the early phone calls we have with a lot of companies are just like, let's get clear on that. We ask people to pin down their who hunches, um, which are the one to two to three like who's that are, are the core people in their community. And a lot of people who have an instinct that they might have an opportunity to you know, supercharge a group of passionate people that make strategic sense for their business, they still might not even like really have that granularity of knowing like who are these people and how do we describe them. Um, so I feel like a lot of our, just just there's a lot of lack of strategic clarity in this space. Uh, I think really visionary business people have an instinct. Oh, there's something over here that's untapped. There's energy, there's an asset. And, and I think if we did something with it, there's a there's a possible really good strategic reason why we should. But all of the dots underneath that are like not filled out. 
And so that's honestly like I feel like we are strategic partners a lot of times, just getting really clear on let's in one sentence be able to describe the business opportunity, why we're doing this. In one sentence also, let's then define who is in this community and why they're coming together and then what they do together. So just kind of taking this word that means everything to everyone and pinning it down into action and strategic clarity is, uh, I find that almost universally, even the most advanced community uh, thinking companies can value, can take value from that. Um, so, so we always just have these like clarifying conversations with people. One of the things that I, so, so lack of strategic clarity, but one of the things that I'm also consistently uh, like reminded of is a lot of businesses struggle to be consistent. So I can't tell you how many different companies we've talked to where we, you know, ask them, okay, you know, what does your community do together? What activities, whether online conversations or offline events, or now like in this world, Zoom events, do you host for your community? And it's always like, I like to say like throwing, that people have thrown spaghetti on a wall. <laughs> like there are like 16 different types of events. None of them happen over on a consistent, like I can rely on them. It's the first Thursday of every month or, you know, the every Thursday of the week. Um, and people try all sorts of different programming as a community investment instead of doing something consistently, something that, you know, people know is there for them. The central at moment in the week or in the month when the whole community comes together. Um, and, and people just sort of throw these one-off marketing events that, that will not allow for a community to form. A community needs something that we call a shared activity, but it's sort of like, like religion has really figured out the community thing. It's sort of like Sunday mass, you know? I know that this is going to happen on Sunday. I know I am welcome there. And if I want to go, I can go. And if I miss it, I'll go next week. That drumbeat of an event, whether it's, like I said, online or off, people really drop that in th when they're in a business capacity. And often, too, I think businesses change their strategies or change their leadership, and they may take something that's building momentum and just completely turn a corner with it or ideate on it and change the direction instead of doing the sufficient commitment to allow it to build steam. Um, so I see that a lot. Uh, number one, lack of strategic clarity. And then inconsistency. Businesses love to like be new and have wild ideas and do different things at different times. Um, but, you know, a great community is often really like, like I said, like religious, you can take the religious metaphor or even like a local cafe. You, you just need to open the cafe door every day and, and be there. And over time, you're going to build your regulars. And people just become very sort of like erratic um, in in the spaces that they create for community members. So so I've talked a lot, but just to give one example of that, um, at Instagram, one of the things that we did, no matter what, every week uh, from the beginning, really almost beginning of the company, maybe a few months into the beginning of the company, up until a couple of years ago when they shut down the community team there was we hosted a weekend hashtag, hashtag project, which was inspired by Tumblr. But the way we strategically saw all of our work at Instagram was when new people signed up to the platform, 
we wanted to show them what Instagram was all about. We wanted to set the tone around what kind of content you should post on Instagram and, and how to use it. And we did that by shining a spotlight on people who did a really great job at Instagram. They took quality photos, you know, pictures that were in focus with their mobile phones, uh, which was what Instagram was designed to do. Um, and they also responded to their comments. That was important to us. They were warm and they responded to their comments. And we would feature these people on a suggested user list. So when you first signed up for Instagram, you would run into examples of these people and you could follow them. Then we also would uh, write stories about them on our at Instagram account and our blog, which a lot of people followed. And so people could learn uh, about interesting users and, and follow them themselves and kind of mimic and see their content. So our whole goal was education and, and inspiration of users to set the tone around what content should be on Instagram. We knew if the content was really interesting and fresh and exciting, then people would love Instagram. So one of the ways that we did that, our, our sort of shared activity was every Friday, we would post a prompt and we would find a hashtag that had been sort of organically popular within the creative community on Instagram. Maybe something like, there was one that I loved called camouflage cars, where there would be a car on the street sitting in front of a wall that was the exact same color as the car, or like the background was the same, so the car sort of blended in. But we would take a hashtag from the community and we would say, this weekend, take a picture like with this theme. And over the next two days, folks would go out some people would take the picture and upload it. We got to the point where hundreds of thousands of people were participating each weekend. And our team would go through the submissions. And on Monday, we would publish 12 pictures that we thought were really interesting, uh, submitted by the community, including the usernames of the people who, fe who, were, who had created those pictures. And folks would you know, click through on the username, follow those people, find the photo, like it, leave comments about how cool it was. But we did that every week every week and people expected it and they were excited for it and they were excited to participate in it. And, and that is like an example of what I'm sort of saying in, in, in terms of like the discipline and the commitment to sticking with someone with, with, a, with an activity that brings your community together. Uh, a lot of businesses just try a million different things instead of sticking to one thing that really sits at the center of the purpose of their community. Yeah. Wow. I think that's uh, that's incredible. And I loved the fact that you also brought up the religious example, because I think there are elements actually that we forget that could be relevant to business. I do want to go also because you've talked you've talked about some really great tips. And I think you've given some super like concrete things that you guys have done at, at different with different companies you've worked with or at Instagram. Station F is full of early stage startups a lot of them have less than three years of existence. They're just getting started. And a lot of them are building community-based businesses. Um, what would you say to those companies that are just getting started? Well, number one, um, go you. <laughs> I think <laughs> entrepreneurship is, you know, becoming extremely celebrated, which I think is awesome societally and culturally. I don't know how it is in France and where I'm from, Silicon Valley, it is so celebrated, but that doesn't mean that it's not extremely hard. Um, and I just want to, you know, say, go you. And I know it's, I'm sure it's a journey and a process. And um, I know that it can be hard um, at times and also rewarding at times. So just to acknowledge that. 
Um, the, the, the first thing I'll say is, you know, I, I read that Paul Graham, uh, from Y Combinator in the U S the, the great guru, um, who, you know, I don't know personally, but he, he gave advice to Airbnb at the outset of their company to go find a hundred people who love the product and to not worry about anything else but that. And that feels really connected to my perspective on those early, the importance of the early days of your product, especially for a B2C company. Um, you, you might be trying to do a million different things, but with a community strategy, I think what's really important is finding those people who have a really high product market fit for what you're building. And if you can't find them, that might be a, a sign <laughs> that you might, might not be there yet. But if you can set you know, a very simple goal, which is I want to find 100 people or create 100 people who really love my product. And that includes like doing the work to like know them and know that they love your product and keeping their name maybe <laughs> in a spreadsheet so that you can, can count to 100 I think that's a really great goal. Um, and what what is baked in there as well is this perspective that one thing that really stands out to me about having worked with startups, advised startups, um, and also worked with like really old companies with people who are uh, used to working at, you know, as sort of like MBA type businesses where there's a lot of strategy and scale is that being a great leader of a company and being successful requires knowing what is most important to your business at that stage and what tactics are required of your business at the stage that you're in, and then being able to shift that later when you exit that stage and recognizing that you're in a new era of your business. And one thing that I see that people do a lot is especially uh, maybe you're talking to a lot of VCs about what your numbers need to be in a year's time, or perhaps you come from a background at a much bigger company where the scale has, has been much larger. But entrepreneurs want to skip the high-touch work, maybe the non-scalable work of building their communities at the early stage of building partners, of building human relationships, of getting to know people on a very personal scale because it doesn't seem valid. It, you know, it doesn't seem scalable. They need to get to thousands of customers. They need to, uh, you know, down the line be at Y. So I, I have to just work at that scale to start. And I, I try to like say, you know, it's almost like you're trying to get a Model T car running and <laughs> And you need to crank the engine to get your company started. You need to do the a certain type of work to get the car running. And then once the car is running, it's a different type of work to steer it and to drive it. But you're, you're trying to turn the crank right now. Um, and that may require not super strategic scalable work, but work that is, is high touch. And your ability to make the decisions about which things to do that are high touch and which things not to do will be some of the art of running your business. Um, 
and I've, I'm not sure that I put this whole answer together as clearly as possible, but there's one story that I want to tell that I go back to with this point, um, which is there's a man who started a company I'm, maybe some of the listeners are familiar with called Indie Hackers named Cortland Allen. And they got acquired by Stripe a couple of years ago. Um, but the the company started, Cortland had gone through some, you know, like I think Y Combinator, a couple of like big incubators in the US. And he was, he's brilliant. Uh, you know, went to an Ivy League school, grew up on the East Coast, dreamed of moving to Silicon Valley and did the whole VC thing and then decided actually he didn't want to build a VC-backed company. He wanted to bootstrap and and run an independent business. And in the course of doing research around how to run an independent business, he realized that the media doesn't cover these types of companies at all. And there was really limited information available for people who were building independent internet businesses. He, as you can imagine, the media sort of you know talks a lot about the Facebooks and the unicorns and the fast growth companies that VC tends to produce, but they don't talk about someone who's running a perfectly respectable corner of the internet and making you know uh, enough money to to support their lives. Um, and, and so Cortland decided to um, build a business that ironically taught people to build their own internet businesses and connected people who were in the process of doing that. And the way he started the company, even though he's an engineer and is has a mind for scale and a capacity to build a, a, you know, a soft piece of software that reaches thousands of people, the place he started was by researching 100, 150 people that had already built independent internet businesses and writing stories about them documenting their interviews. So he he went on the internet for like two days, spent those two days finding names of people that had he respected, who had written or shared about their experience of building a bootstrap business, you know, creating a spreadsheet, documenting their names and emails, and then writing each of them personal emails, asking them if he could interview them and share share uh, their story. And that was how he launched Indie Hackers, was he gathered hundreds of people's experience of bootstrapping a business, did a really thoughtful job of packaging up their story, and then kind of published them and included in a button on the website that said, you know, if you want to join our forum that we're building, where we're going to connect people who are all independent internet uh, business leaders, you know, give us your email. Today, they have something like 60,000 people who are indie hackers, and they have a really automated, impressive storytelling uh, strategy. They have a podcast. They have a forum. They have meetups. Um, it, it's, it's become something much bigger, but it started with Cortland emailing 100, 150 people. And as he acknowledged, we, he was on our podcast, like something that wouldn't scale, but it made a lot of strategic sense at that moment in time. And so I'd say after this very long answer that I've given, um, that ask yourself, is it, are you doing the work that your company requires at this moment in time, given what it is right now? And a lot of people in particular who are building software products have this instinct, oh, I'll just add this one other feature, this one, one more feature, and then people will come. And sometimes what you need to do may be people work. 
emailing people, getting on the phone with people, meeting people, reaching out to people to get just the people in the platform or the people using the product who are the key partners that will allow your business to take flight. And that work can be scary and it can feel not scalable, but it is essential. Yeah, I think that is a very, very good point. And that's definitely something we see quite a bit of. Um, you hinted on uh, the growth, for example, of indie hackers. You talked a little bit about how they went from being, you know, he started out with this list of 150, went to 60,000 people in the community. Um, also, we talked about Instagram's early days, but we haven't gotten a chance to talk about the later days. I mean, it's huge now. What happens when a community grows? What kind of growing pains do communities experience? And what are things to look out for? Yeah, Maybe a good way to answer that question to start is talking about a little bit about measurement. Um, there are two things that I I keep returning to when I think about measuring a community. And one is sort of like acquisition and retention, um, you know, growth and and engagement, growth and health are the two things that I think about. And when I think about health of a community, what you're looking for is that people keep coming back. It's it's a really clear value that or signal that the community is value valuable to people, meaningful to people if they're coming back over and over and over again. And of course, you know, people who build software products, platforms know that. But I even mean that for someone who's like hosting a basketball team <laughs> or a run club or whatever. Um, if you can see that your people are coming back over and over again, it's a great sign that you have a healthy community and maybe one that can grow. Um, and so it's important to know, you know, do I have that retention? Are, are people coming back over and over again to this space, to this community? But then, you know, this question of growth, um, I, I keep feeling as though this is probably not a comprehensive answer but I keep seeing this, this way of thinking about growing a community intellectually being the right answer for many different, um, or the right framing for many different businesses or organizations, which is that you grow a community by growing the number of leaders in the community. So you might be sitting at, you know, as I was Instagram HQ in Menlo Park or um, in your office, wherever you are, and your ability to grow a community is going to be determined by whether or not you have people out in the world who become leaders, who represent either the interest areas or the cultures or the uh, geographies or the verticals that are important to the future of your business. And, and that's how I saw the growth of Instagram and how our team measured ourselves was when we were launching Android, for example, Instagram was iOS only for a really long time. We knew it was important to grow the number of Instagram suggested users and um, sort of creative leaders on Instagram in countries like Korea and Brazil that were really Android dominant um, because we wanted people who signed up for Instagram on Android to see people who spoke their language who were from their country when they signed up, even if none of their friends were on the platform yet. And so we would just set goals for ourselves. We need, you know, 30, 50 people to feature over the next 
X number of months from those places. And that can also be true for, you know, a company like maybe we can go back to to Weight Watchers, for example. They grew leaders from their own community, people who had been through the program. And those people were the one that ones that opened new uh, spaces, me- physical meeting spaces for Weight Watchers and would take people through the methodology in other cities. Um, but that ability to really zero in on, like I said in the very beginning, who is our key partner? Like, who are the key partners that are going to help us grow uh, our, our in, in a strategic way, in a way that we can't manage internally ourselves? And how do we make more of those people in the areas that we need to grow? Um, it is, is a really sharp way and simple way of thinking about the growth of your company. And if you, there's a lot of downstream effects of that. Um, for instance, you know, as something gets bigger and bigger, ideally the community still has really specific pockets, sort of these small clusters that form around different leaders that allow someone to still be sort of seen and heard or to talk about something as specifically as they'd like to. But that approach is is sort of the the way I like to think about community growth. Is you need if you want to grow your community. Can't just grow it as sort of a giant blob. You need to grow little nodes in the network um, to extend your reach. Wow, that is a really great way to think about it. And we've covered so much territory, um, and it's been just so educational. I love it. I'm going to end on one question about the impact of communities. Um, what have you seen uh, as kind of like the most impactful? things that have come out of different communities that you've worked with? I think there's a, maybe a business and a cause-based conversation for me. I like to learn as much about the communities, like I said, Substack or Weight Watchers, as I do the Surfrider Foundation in the United States, which has been fighting in cities around the world to make sure our water is clean and we have access to coastline and clean beaches. So, you know, People who are able to scale their impact by empowering other people is fascinating to me across the board. I'll say that, you know, I come from, I've talked about Instagram a few times, but I come from that world where these sort of like creative platform um, spaces, that's, that's where I had my foundational experience of building a community. And when you work at a company you know, like I, maybe I'm talking to a lot of entrepreneurs here. When you work at a company at an early stage, the way that I experienced working at Instagram, you know, I would walk into the office and there are 10, 11 other people sipping their coffee, writing code on their computer, you know, and it, it's so obvious how fragile um, something at that early stage is and how it's just code, you know. It's just putting uh, figures into a terminal and pressing enter. And not to say that code's not hard to write, but it's lifeless. It's a skeleton without any flesh. And to me, um, it is near and dear to my heart. And it always will be the way that people show up to populate platforms with their creativity, with their heart and soul, with their deep thinking. And one of the correspondents on our podcast, uh, our get together podcast was 
It's a woman named Mia Qualiarello, who was the first community hire at YouTube. And I know she felt the same. You know, YouTube is nothing without creative people publishing their dreams and their their videos on YouTube. And so I think I have been awestruck so many times by, you know, the American who lives in Pyongyang, North Korea, who uh, is a teacher there and can go on hikes and being able to see his photos and the way that he generously interacts with people who are asking him questions on the platform or, um, you know, there's so many examples of people putting themselves into this, these, these products that we build that are, you know, just, just a couple of people writing code that, um, will always be near and dear to me. And I think when you're able to create a sense of meaningful connection and a sense of collaboration, um, between people in a digital space like that, a sense of connection and belonging, it's a really powerful thing and a rare thing. And, and I'm grateful to have experienced that in terms of causes, I think that there's a lot we can learn from movements, from the way people have organized around political causes, because they didn't have resources. You know, they didn't have the the budget, the annual budget to hire 20 marketers or <laughs> to run hu- huge amounts of Facebook ads. So, you know, people who have been leading local or national movements have known that a community building strategy is the strategy that they have at hand to help to find other people who can be partners, to give them responsibility, to welcome them into the cause. Um, There's so much we can learn from those groups. And for me, one, one that I'll mention um, that it has completely inspired me here in the United States is an organization called Girl Trek. And it was started by two teachers, um, two black women who, as they age, became aware of the statistics for black women's health in the United States, which if you are a black woman in the United States, your your health outcomes are uh, are the wor- some of the worst statistically in the country. So I think um, something like 50% of young black girls are predicted to be obese by the year like 2030. Like the the statistics are really grim. And both of them had lost aunts too young and were teachers and were worried about the health of their students. And they didn't have any background in public health. They just knew they needed to do something to help change these outcomes. And they started uh, taking their students on on walks for 30 minutes a day, five days a week, which is what the CDC in the United States recommends for health, just go on a walk 30 minutes a day, five days a week. Um, and they were doing that. And then they decided to issue a challenge to their friends and family. They sent out an email, it's like a hundred day challenge. Let's walk for 30 minutes a day for a hundred days. They emailed like 200 people and it just exploded. They had like 600 people write them back with their stories. They started a Facebook group, started posting those stories on Facebook and now Girl Trek is 850,000 people have walked with Girl Trek. They have local leaders in cities like Jackson, Mississippi, where, you know, one woman will re- lead like nine or 10 different walking groups. They've gotten the whole 
organization, leaders from the whole organization together to walk the Underground Railroad here in the United States and and to walk from Montgomery to Selma, these historic civic right uh, civil rights walks that people have done. Um, and through the pandemic, they're now doing these live phone calls. So the founders walk at 12 noon every day. You can dial in and listen, and then they release them as, as podcasts. Um, but seeing what they've done has, has been really inspiring to me. You know, if we go back to some of the principles that we've talked about, they started from a really personal place and did something that wasn't necessarily meant to scale or designed to scale. They got people in their lives together to walk. And then they created an activity that was repeatable, right? 30 minutes a day, five days a week, keep doing it. That's what we do together and we stick to it. And then they, they, they grew the number of leaders. They created um, people who were their local chapter leaders, city leaders, um, stars who really stood out to them that were really passionate about the mission and allowed them to organize their own cities and also their own Facebook pages. So there are like hundreds of Facebook pages now for different cities around the country and, and in Africa. Um, but I just think what they're doing is they they just they just get it. They have this incredible instinct around how to build a community up and down the stack. We have like nine steps in our community building framework and they're doing all of them and, and just excelling. Um, and And you can see how I think communities are really powerful because when you start to have a lot of people playing a role, a lot of people doing something that might seem like a small activity, but that many, 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 many people can do, the the power of that is so significant. And, you know, if they had just walked, gone for walks with their students, they wouldn't have affected 850,000 people's lives <laughs> and, and more. But their ability to give other people, make other people their partners in this mission is is has has meant it's affected so many other people's lives and and shifted their lives for the better. Um, so there are so many examples like this, and I keep being inspired. You know, here I am four or five years into my work by both people who are doing this professionally and people who are doing it for passion, political passion, or or you know interests. Um, sort of nerdy passions. Um, but yeah, I think there's there's sort of nothing more inspiring or awe-inducing than a group of people agreeing to come together and advocate for the expansion of something they believe in or or uh, indulging in, in that passion together. It's just such a beautiful energy, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think we've heard so many great and inspiring examples. Uh, Bailey, it has been an absolute pleasure having you with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Sorry, my answers were so long. I have the number one rule of podcasting. Not at all. All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us. If you like this episode, make sure to give us many, many stars. And if you have any feedback or if you want to suggest a topic or a speaker, uh, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter or by email at press at stationf.co. And finally, make sure to follow us and not miss out on our next podcast episodes. We're available on all your usual podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, and Google Podcasts. All right. See you soon.